Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Stroke Research Lecture Podcast. This podcast features Dr. Ann Kolonowski, PhD, presenting the challenges of delirium superimposed on dementia, assessment and intervention in post-acute care. Dr. Kolonowski is a professor of nursing and professor of psychiatry at the College of Medicine, adjunct professor, associated faculty, School of Nursing, the University of Pennsylvania. This podcast was recorded on Monday, November 16, 2017 at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, 120 Eagle Rock Ave, East Hanover, New Jersey, and was edited and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in. I'm delighted to be here. I often come down or across 80, and I'm usually going toward New York City. Um, So this time I I took a a turn onto uh, East Orange and uh, found this wonderful place here and all you wonderful people in the middle of New Jersey that I never knew about. So today, I'm going to talk about the challenge of delirium superimposed on dementia. Say a little bit about both assessment and intervention in post-acute care settings, because that's very apropos with what you do here. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the support I've had from the National Institutes of Health. And also, I want to give a very special thank you to the residents, the family, and the staff who participated in many studies that we've done over the past 25 years. And I have no conflicts of interest to report. So my objectives, I want to say a little bit about differentiating dementia and delirium. I want to describe some key principles in the care of patients with delirium superimposed on dementia, um, and then report out some of the findings that um, we have from our recent clinical trial on delirium superimposed on dementia, and that's reserved for DSD and post-acute care. So I don't think it's going to be any news to this group that the age wave is here. There are 37 million Americans who are over the age of 65. Right now, they're almost 15% of our population. They will be 20% by 2029. And contrary to a lot of... um, assumptions people make, this uh, cohort of people is healthier, they have fewer disabilities than younger generations, previous generations. I should say, not younger, previous. However, one of their biggest worries is memory loss or dementia. In fact, a recent um, AARP survey found that 93% of the respondents said maintaining brain health is their top priority. And so what is dementia? Uh, This is a classical definition. It's a decline in cognitive performance, things like memory, language, attention that's sufficient to alter day-to-day functioning, and it occurs in the setting of an intact level of consciousness. There are many different neurodegenerative diseases that cause this clinical presentation that we call dementia, 
Alzheimer's is probably the most common, along with vascular dementia. They're often mixed. Uh, but there are other neurodegenerative diseases that cause a dementia, like Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, um, Huntington's disease. So some quick facts for those that of you that might not be familiar with uh, different types of dementia. Right now, five million people in the United States have Alzheimer's disease, 25 million worldwide. It's the only cause of death in the top 10 that we really don't know how to prevent, slow or certainly not cure. It's one of the most expensive chronic diseases that's out there. This year, it's going to cost our nation $236 billion. It's also because of the prevalence and the cost of this chronic disease, it's a major public health issue. And so back in 2011, Congress passed unanimously both houses, which is amazing when you think of Congress today, the national plan to address Alzheimer's disease. And what that calls for is a national plan with periodic updates to address this huge problem that we have. And it involves all federal agencies, including the National Institute of Health, the CDC, um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Now, since 2011, there have been several national summits, most of them focused on uh, biomedical issues around dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease, Down syndrome. This year, in October, we had the first national summit on dementia care services and supports. And they have a website that's up and running. Uh, they will have their final report in January of 2018. But you can get on there and actually see the, uh, the uh, video recording of that meeting along with the first um, 11 buckets of recommendations that they are making. So I encourage you to go to their website. So what is the impact of dementia? And we're talking about mostly post-acute care, but really this starts before people get to you uh, in the acute care area. Um, there are a lot of people in acute care with dementia. Uh, they comprise 40% of all older um, hospital inpatients, which might be pretty surprising. Uh, they're admitted for many reasons. Typically, they're in a crisis, like following a fall or with respiratory distress. They also have uh, higher rates of complications like functional decline, readmissions to the hospital, long-term nursing home placement, and what we're going to talk about today, delirium. Many older adults that actually do have a neurodegenerative process going on do not have a medical diagnosis. And we have found this in our work. Their families are often unaware 
that they have this diagnosis. It's just when we screen people and pick this up that uh, they become aware. So I think that points to the importance of screening all older adults for mental status in all settings because this is so prevalent. Hospitalization is often the first time that a cognitive impairment becomes apparent. And that's often because delirium kind of uncovers this brain vulnerability that is there. So what's delirium? We have Dr. Park, who's uh, an expert here. I'm sure she can tell you this uh, as well as I can. Uh, this is a picture of delirium. We were talking about this over lunch. It's a neurobehavioral syndrome, and it's caused by a transient disruption of cerebral homeostasis. It's characterized by a sudden and fluctuating decline in both cognitive and physical function. You often see people in acute care, older adults, who look like this older woman, and this is what you see with delirium. Some people uh, get confused by delirium and dementia. Um, both, of course, involve cognitive changes. Delirium is often superimposed on dementia, which, by the way, dementia is the, the greatest risk factor for delirium. While dementia develops over time, Delirium is more of a recent abrupt change in the last few hours, the last couple of weeks. Dementia is rarely reversible, but delirium can be resolved. And delirium does involve a change in both attention and level of consciousness, whereas dementia does not until very late stages of dementia do we start to get issues around attention. So what causes it? Well, the short answer is we really don't know yet. Uh, it usually involves a vulnerable patient, and that's a person that's got predisposing factors such as old age, depression, alcohol abuse, high comorbidities, and of course, dementia, as we said. And this, um, these predisposing factors um, put people at risk for developing delirium in the face of a noxious stimuli, or what we call precipitating factors. And they include things like drugs adverse drug events, um, specifically looking at anticholinergic sedative hypnotics, infection, sepsis, or urinary tract infection, pneumonia, pain can be a precipitating factor, surgery, particularly after hip fracture surgery or cardiac surgery. And bottom line, it's often multifactorial. The more predisposing factors someone has, the fewer precipitating factors you need. So for a very young, say 20-year-old, who's in a, uh, you know, suffers multiple trauma, is in a car accident, in ICU, and they're septic, that might be enough to throw them into a delirium. If you have an older adult, with a lot of comorbidities and dementia, urinary tract infection might be enough. So what's the prevalence? 
Is this common? Um, we know that about 2.6 million older adults develop delirium each year. These are the latest statistics we have. 25% of older adults with no history of cognitive impairments will experience delirium following surgery. This comes out of Sharon Inouye's SAGES study. However, when the person has, when the patient has dementia, 89% of people with dementia, up to 89%, can experience a delirium when hospitalized. And between 24 and 75% are going to die within one year of the index episode, making it, you know, high, not only morbidity, but also mortality. Delirium persists. Over two-thirds of older adults who are admitted to post-acute care settings exhibit delirium on admission. And these symptoms can persist for months, especially in people with dementia. Uh, what happens uh, is, if it persists, is that it results in an accelerated trajectory of cognitive and physical decline that prolongs hospitalization as well as rehabilitation and often is the precipitating factor for nursing home placement. When delirium resolves slowly or never at all, less than 50% of pre-illness functioning is uh, realized. And of course, it has a tremendous cost. Um, $164 billion national burden has been attributed to delirium. So delirium, we really need to start thinking about it as a medical emergency. We often don't. Um, approximately 60% of cases go unrecognized. Clinicians, whether they're nurses, even physicians, fail to assess and detect delirium in older adults, especially those with dementia. Um, and keep in mind, there are two types of delirium, hypo and hyperactive in, in a mixed. Hypoactive is the most common and actually has worse outcomes. And it's the one where, you know, the person's just, you know, very lethargic doesn't call attention to itself. You know, these are not patients that are climbing out of the bed, ripping out IVs, and, and have the staff really um, quite concerned. So why does it go unrecognized? Well, we've done some work here. First of all, in terms of delirium superimposed on dementia, we really have no standardization in the assessment. I'll talk a little more about that in a bit. Hospital staff often attribute confusion to, you know, the person, oh, they're 85, what do you expect? Or they have dementia. And skilled nursing staff in post-acute care settings, both licensed and direct care workers, uh, have very low recognition of delirium. Let me show some of the data out of our clinical trial. I don't know if you can see this, but what we did was we used validated case vign vignettes. And uh, we gave these uh, 760 surveys 
two staff and skilled nursing centers over, we collected them at three points in time, six months apart, in eight skilled nursing uh, facilities. We wanted to see if, you know, maybe their knowledge uh, improved. And what you can see here, let me see if I got a clicker here. Is this, um, oh, nope, that's not it. Would help if I put my glasses on. <laughs> what a, uh, it's upside down. Let's see here. This is, I need the pointer. Oh, it's here. Right here? No, um, this one. Oh, okay, that one there. Okay, very good. <laughs> yep, there it is. Okay, so here we have the licensed nurses, RNs and LPNs, three time periods. Um, we had these case vignettes that describe dementia, hypoactive delirium, hyperactive delirium, hyperactive delirium superimposed on dementia, and hypoactive delirium superimposed on dementia. These are the nursing assistants. Well, what we found across time for both licensed and unlicensed staff is that recognition rates were very low. Um, they just reached 70% correct. That was the highest on dementia, recognizing dementia. And these are people who are dealing with these people on a daily basis. Hypoactive delirium was the least recognized subtype. And very surprisingly, both the licensed and direct care workers had similar responses. There was no statistical difference between the licensed staff and the direct care workers, which you think, wow, you would have thought the licensed people would have done better. However, this does tell us that if we can train direct care workers, they may be as good as the licensed staff in picking this up. And in post-acute care, that's usually who we have um, caring for people on a daily basis. So we also did a survey. Uh, the American Nurses Association and the American Delirium Society about two years ago we collaborated on a big delirium awareness project. If there are any nurses in here, you may have gotten this survey. What we did was we sent surveys to all the American nurses members and their affiliates too. And we wanted to find out what they knew about delirium. Okay, so this was across all settings, not just post-acute care, it was hospital nurses, those in the community. And less than half of the respondents felt confident in identifying people at risk, recognizing signs and symptoms, or giving care to people with delirium. 72% never used an assessment tool like the CAM, I think you folks do here. And 70% either disagreed or didn't know if their facility had appropriate policies for preventing and treating delirium. 70% didn't know. So that tells you they didn't know uh, if there was a policy there. So we need to start thinking of mental status as the sixth vital sign. The American Delirium Society has written about this as far back as 2007. So what are the features of delirium? Well, there are four major. 
acute and fluctuating uh, decline in cognitive symptoms. That's why we need to assess people on every shift because if you only do it once a day, you might miss it. Inattention, which uh, is the most prominent symptom, and of course that's not a problem until later stages of dementia. Disorganized thinking, which does have an overlap with dementia, and altered level of consciousness, either hyperactive or hypoactive. And this also is not a problem in dementia. So where do you get this information? Acute and fluctuating onset is probably one of the hardest to assess. This is really where you need to know what the baseline is. And if you have a new patient coming into you who's confused, you're not going to know is this what they're usually like or is this new. So you need to get this information from family, uh, from the prior uh, place where they were, either the hospital nurse or uh, from other caregivers. In attention, observe the patient. Are they easily distractible? Do they have trouble keeping track of what's being said or following directions? Ask them to spell the word world backwards. Disorganized thinking. Again, observe the patient. Um, do they have rambling, incoherent conversation, um, incoherent thoughts? And then altered level of consciousness. Again, observe the patient or ask the caregiver. Is the patient more alert than they usually are? More drowsy? Are they difficult to arouse? Uh, and I know you're familiar with Sharon Inouye's CAM, but um, I thought I'd review that. Other characteristics of delirium are things like illusions, hallucinations, delusions, disturbed sleep-wake cycle, uh, mood swings, abnormal motor activity. So what I'm going to try and do now is I'm going to show you some videos of um, actual patients. And I'm going to ask you to tell me at the end of the video whether you think it's delirium or it's dementia. So I'm going to just end this. Is that the, is that the shrink sign? Uh, OK. OK. And go down to the, the cone. Okay. 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 Can you say? How you doing? I'm over here. Can you look over here for me? Sir? Excuse me, sir. The doctor's over here. Can I ask you a few questions? Have you been seeing some things while you've been here? Well, like I guess I hear a bird singing. A bird singing, yeah. I showed the TV off. It ain't the TV. Okay. It's something on that. Have you been seeing birds in the room? Yeah, once in a while. Okay. How about how about any other animals? 
What kind of animals are you seeing? Horses, cows, camels. Is that confirming to you? Huh? Is that well, I don't pay no attention. No attention? No. Okay. All right. And it drives you nuts. It drives you nuts, though? No, no. Then that's why I don't listen to it. Oh, yeah. I don't hear nothing. Hey, you live in the All kinds of stuff right there. Shut the TV off, leave the TV. Can you tell me the days that we backwards starting with Sunday, please? Monday. Go backwards. Yeah. Well, when it starts? Start with Sunday, go backwards from Sunday. Sunday, the nine. Okay, so what do you think? Is that dementia or delirium? Delirium. Delirium. How many say delirium? Okay, anybody say dementia? Hey, you guys are really good. <laughs> okay. This gentleman demonstrates delirium with psychotic thinking. Along with hallucinations, we see inattention, unresponsiveness, and a generally depressed alertness. Okay, good. Let's try another one here. How'd you come to be in the hospital? Well, I'm a bunch of, uh, no, kind of, uh, cops or whatever they were came in my apartment without permission and dragged me dragged me out literally yeah. I, I was screaming every inch of the way do you know why they did that? because I wouldn't leave voluntarily but why did they want you to leave your apartment? I don't know they, they said uh, it was messy in my apartment I had a maid and and. She keeps us spotless. It was a lie. And uh, not only that, uh, uh, this visiting uh, nurse says, I don't know her first name. Uh, and it, uh, she lied. She she said my house was a mess. No, it never is and it never was. So it was just a bunch of lies. They grabbed me and they, what they did with me, I'm gonna get even with them some way. But God says vengeance is mine, I will repay. But I'm gonna get even with them. And I tell them, I remember every one of your faces, every one. Uh, you have any medical problems? What? Do you have any medical problems? No. Okay. So, I am, but I can't walk. Uh, why can't you walk? Because I failed trying to get on the metro train, and uh, believe me, they said that the driver has seen me fall. But no lawyer will take my case against metro because they won't. 
Okay, so is that dementia or delirium? How many say dementia? Okay, how many say delirium? Okay, um, why do you say delirium? Okay. Well, potentially, I don't know much about dementia. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, so. <laughs> All right, somebody else here had a, a hand up for delirium. Yeah, the same reason, okay. All right, let's see what we get here. This woman demonstrates symptoms of cognitive impairment that are consistent with dementia, including paranoid thoughts and delusions. The apparent belligerent behavior might be interpreted as compensating for the cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you guys are really good. Um, what I want to point out here is in the first case, the first gentleman, did you notice the inattention? I mean, that was really prominent. The doctor was calling him and he had to say, sir, the doctor's over here. Okay. Um, in the second case, our, our lady there, she, she, was, she was attending to everything. You know, very alert. Very alert okay, <laughs> spell world backwards. No. <laughs> okay, if we had more time, I would show you some more examples because they're very good. But I'll I'll let you if you want to buy this. Um, uh, it's a good training tool. So now I need to get out of it. So how do you <laughs> to get back to my slides? Is there a I know this is okay. Oh, just exit. Okay, okay. And okay. Uh, you could just knock it off, right? You can just click the PowerPoint. Okay, and now we're back to my PowerPoints. You can just click it on the bottom. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, here we are. Okay. So you did very good. Wow, I, I never get this, these responses uh, that well. So let's talk a little bit uh, for the next few minutes about screening for delirium. What are some of the clinical issues that uh, we run into? I said before, establishing a baseline for comparison is so important. This is where your family or the staff in the hospital, as people are coming into your agency here, are critically important so that they can tell you, what is this, has this person been like? Also, it's important to assess for inattention, which is the most prominent feature in delirium. And then the other thing that I think is critically important, we were talking a little bit about this uh, this morning, 
Um, it's really hard to ask staff to add another assessment into the, the, all the other tasks they have every day. So there's a real need for a screen that can be easily folded into the workflow here. So uh, one of my former postdocs, uh, you may know her, Andrea Gilmore Bykovsky. She works with um, Amy Kind, who is a geriatrician out at the uh, VA in Wisconsin. And they have done a really nice study looking at the communication that goes on between uh, hospital staff and admitting people to long, longer-term care settings and the quality of the communication there and how when that is poor, when hospital staff don't tell you folks the whole truth about what has been going on with this um, patient, how that really impacts your work. We often see, at least in long-term care settings, that staff in hospitals are reluctant to say, you know, the person really had a lot of behavioral issues when they're here because they're afraid they're not going to get accepted into the, um, you know, into this setting. And uh, so they kind of push that under the rug. And then when they get into post-acute care settings, whoa, all of a sudden, you folks have an issue that you didn't know that you were going to be faced with. So very important to have good communications during transitions, real important. Um, another colleague of mine, uh, Donna Fick, who is at Penn State, is working right now with Ed Mark Antonio, who is another geriatrician at Harvard. And they're trying to develop a very short screening instrument that would just take a few, you know, a few seconds to minutes. And so uh, they are funded right now. That clinical, that trial is um, ongoing, but they did some preliminary work. And what they did was they compared the gold standard DSM-4, or now it's five, but it was four then, defined delirium, to items on the confusion assessment method, the 3D CAM, to determine the sensitivity and specificity um, of that uh, instrument. And what they found was the single item with the best test characteristics was asking the patient to recite the months of the year backwards. It had a sensitivity of 83%. You know, that's pretty good. Specificity of only 69%, which I know is not good. However, here's the thinking. Because delirium has such poor outcomes, it's better to gather everybody, have a higher sensitivity than specificity. They're working to improve that. The best two item screen was a combination of months of the year backwards and what is the day of the week. That had a sensitivity of 93%. Specificity still, you know, pretty low but they're working on it. Um, another colleague of mine from Canada, Philippe, uh, Philippe Voyer, who works with uh, Cole and McCuster and that group up in um, um, Canada, has this kind of neat uh, instrument. It's called RADAR, recognizing acute delirium as part of your routine. 
Um, it's anybody at the bedside, and it's for both acute and long-term care settings. Um, this is conducted, this screen is conducted during uh, the medication pass, and it takes account the, pers the patient's behavior since the last medication pass. Seven seconds uh, to complete, and this is what it looks like as you know, was the patient drowsy as you were passing your medications? Uh, do they have trouble following your instructions to take it with water? And were their movements slowed down? Okay, very easy, seven seconds, folded into the workflow, which is a real plus. Um, I told you I'd say a little more about um, recognizing delirium superimposed on dementia because we have no standard way of doing that. However, um, there's a, a, a good paper by Morandi and colleagues that just came out the beginning of this year in JAMDA, and uh, they talk about this problem of delirium superimposed on dementia and uh, recognizing it. Because there's some overlap between dementia and delirium, especially around um, disorganized thinking, using very simple tests that rely on focusing and sustaining attention rather than manipulating information like days of the week backwards or spell world backwards um, is probably better in this population. Like following a moving object. I'm gonna say, you know, follow, um, you know, these glasses as I move them. Um, observing their eye opening, eye contact with you. Think back to the first case we had where, you know, the doctor was talking to that gentleman but he wasn't looking at him. As well as posture and movement. There's that picture again. We talked about that as being somewhat symptomatic or um, a common in um, neglect in your stroke patients. So I would recommend that you, you check out that paper. Okay, so we talked about screening. What about prevention and management? We do know that multi-component, non-pharmacological interventions uh, are efficacious for prevention. Okay, there's been systematic reviews on that. Things like early ambulation, which I think is probably one of the most important things we can do, using sensory aids. If people need glasses, hearing aids, make sure they're in working condition and on. Reorienting people, cognitive stimulation, uh, getting rid of unnecessary tubes as, as quickly as we can or lines, sleep hygiene that does not involve medications, and communication between shifts so we know when there is a change. I have to say something about medication use because this, this can be a big offender. Minimizing the overall number of medications, older adults are on a tremendous number of meds. And being particularly careful with CNS active medications, antipsychotics, anticholinergics. Um, the 2015 updated Beers criteria that you can access on this website 
is really good. Not only does it point out those medications that are potentially inappropriate, but it gives you alternatives um, to use in place of some of the, uh, the more troublesome medications. Okay, so I'm going to share with you a little bit of uh, some of the findings out of our delirium superimposed on dementia uh, clinical trial. It was reserved for DSD. Um, we know, and I, we were particularly interested in post-acute care because we know that discharges to facilities, post-acute care facilities following a hospitalization are going up all the time. Many people with dementia have delirium on admission to post-acute care, having at least one symptom. And as I said before, if re delirium is not resolved, it's going to reduce the potential for rehabilitation. Not only that, but increasing cost and predicting new institutionalization. While we can prevent a lot of cases of delirium, that we really lack a standard delirium treatment. Current practice includes use of antipsychotics and sedatives, but a recent uh, review by Karen Newfield and Sharon Inouye found that there's no evidence of any effect of those medications. And you know that um, they carry a lot of adverse event, uh, effects in older adults. Multi-component non-farm interventions are efficacious for prevention but the evidence for treatment is lacking. And one of the reasons is individual components in these multi-component interventions can confound one another. So it makes it real difficult to know uh, which com components might be effective for an individual episode of delirium. So we developed a non-pharmacological intervention that uh, was based on some of the work that we did prior with people who have dementia. We know that delirium and dementia are both conditions of reduced cognitive reserve. So we were thinking that an intervention that improves cognitive symptoms in one condition might be effective in the other. And we do know that cognitive stimulation using activities that are tailored to interest and, and functional abilities does engage people with dementia, and it did improve attention. Um, this match to their interest, we felt, would um, provide intrinsic motivation and it would encourage the use of attentional skills and support attentional capacity. And we also did a um, pilot study where we did find, you know, uh, a bit of a signal that maybe we could resolve delirium superimposed on dementia. So we conducted this single-blind, randomized clinical trial. We hypothesized that individualized cognitive activities would reduce the duration and severity of delirium and also improve cognitive and physical function outcomes compared to usual care. And we compared it to usual care because there is no standard treatment. Um, 
we uh, recruited in eight post-acute care facilities in central and northeast Pennsylvania. We had 283 community dwelling older adults who were over 65 who had mild to moderate dementia based on a score of three or greater on the blessed and a CDR of 0.5 to 2.0. Um, and either full or subsyndromal delirium, CAM defined. And all of our dementia and delirium diagnoses were adjudicated by a panel of three experts. We had a behavioral neurologist, a geriatrician, and a neuropsychologist. And they, uh, for the delirium uh, uh, diagnosis, there was 100% agreement. The dementia was about 98%. Um, so we were pretty confident that we had the group we needed. So this is the flow of our subjects through the study. 141 were allocated to intervention and 142 to control. We enrolled people within 72 hours of admission to post-acute care. They were then randomized. Uh, we followed them for 30 days or until discharge and then a three-month follow-up. We did daily assessments of delirium, cognitive function, and physical function, and our intervention was 30 minutes daily of cognitively stimulating activities. Our major outcomes were delirium duration, the CAM, severity, we used the delirium rating scale. For cognitive function attention, we measured uh, digit span forward. Memory and orientation, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, those items on that. And for executive function, we used the clocks one and two. Physical function, uh, we measured using the Barthel. And so these were some of our cognitive activities. They're very simple word or object searches, dot to dot, name that tune, um, sorting colored beads, bingo might be one of them. They were selected based on their leisure interest that we got on admission, their mental status, and their sensory and physical function. Uh, we used intent to treat, um, descriptive statistics, um, our variables with a single observation. We used ANOVA and chi-square. Uh, multiple observations we compared using mixed uh, linear models. And the time to resolution, we used the Kaplan-Meier uh, product limit survival estimate. I know you cannot see this, I can't see it either. Uh, but trust me, uh, there were no differences in control or, um, or treatment uh, with respect to any demographic or baseline clinical characteristic. Uh, everybody, um, they were both compatible on comorbidities, CDR, um, MMSC, uh, whether they had full or subsyndromal delirium, um, the therapies that they received, most people were getting PT and OT, uh, the number of medications, um, also the number of anticholinergics, or uh, the number of nursing interventions that were documented. So they were pretty, pretty, um, randomization did its job. <laughs> uh, so the results. Well, we uh, long story short, uh, we did not impact delirium, okay? Uh, it was pretty um, 
pretty, you know, um, there was no no difference between our groups for um, first a time to first remission or the mean percentage of delirium-free days. This is our Kaplan-Meier curve, and as you can see, uh, they're you know very similar. For severity, the same thing. Uh, we did not find any significant difference between our groups. Uh, the green group, the higher, uh, uh, higher up is uh, control, the yellow is um, treatment, but that did not reach statistical significance. But we did find a significant impact of our intervention on executive function, um, not a physical function, not the other domains of cognition, but executive function, and length of stay. Um, we, and we really looked at this. We wanted to make sure that uh, we were not over-interpreting these results, so we made sure that the group assignments um, were the same by site, and we used uh, the facility, the site, as a control variable. So we did find, and again, um, it was non-normally distributed, but that there was a significant difference intervention uh, our intervention group spent less days in post-acute care. And more of them returned to the community, fewer institutionalized, but again, the results were not significant. But we were so happy they were in that direction. So this is the first RCT to test a non-pharmacological intervention that's recommended in current guidelines. Uh, we didn't find this daily 30-minute session of cognitive activities didn't reduce delirium, duration or severity, or improve physical function. But it did have an effect on executive function and our intervention participants spent fewer days in post-acute care. So, um, we know that, what did we conclude from this? Uh, we would have been really been excited if we could see an impact on delirium, but I think there's a lot of reasons we didn't. Most of our uh, participants had subsyndromal delirium and they were resolving, so I think it would have been really hard to show an effect there. Um, executive function is a domain that reflects CNS integrity following delirium, and we know that this is one domain that's really impacted with uh, delirium. Um, and our colleagues down in Tennessee, Jackson in that group, did do a small randomized uh, trial, and they found that when they combined both cognitive training and physical therapy, they had better outcomes, like us, on executive function versus just the physical therapy, and they're conducting a larger trial now. Unlike us, all of their participants uh, were cognitively intact. They did not have dementia. So I think affecting executive skills is important because it does have implications for practice. We know these skills are needed for independent living. So we were pleased with that. So um, I think I still have a couple of minutes here. I just want to quickly tell you a couple of other findings from this trial. These are data from our usual care group. What we found in terms, so none of these um, 
participants had our intervention. We found pain is, is an issue, and uh, this is tricky to treat pain in people with dementia. Days when our participants had greater than their average level of pain, they also had more delirium symptoms and lower physical function. That probably doesn't surprise any of you, that when people have pain, they're not going to be able to uh, perform. Also, participants with higher levels of average daily pain were more likely to die or to be placed in a nursing home compared to going back to the community at three-month follow-up. So that was important. We have that paper's been published. We also looked at anticholinergics, and again, this is a usual care control group only. Um, we use the anticholinergic cognitive burden scale, looking at how much of a burden um, the, uh, the uh, patient has in terms of these medications. And we use multi-level models for time. And we uh, specifically looked at medications that are, are moderate or have a moderate or severe uh, cognitive burden. We didn't worry about those that have mild um, uh, cholinergic effects. And what we found was that when, uh, in those participants that had greater use of clinically relevant anticholinergics in the previous week, they had reduced cognitive function and physical function the next week. We were, that was mainly attention. We didn't find any effect of anticholinergic medications on delirium severity. Um, but we did find that greater use of anticholinergics was related to longer length of stay, but not discharge distribution. So they could have gone anywhere, okay, home or to an institution. And that paper's out if you want to get more of the details. We also, because we did collect data on APO um, status, um, there is literature to suggest that people who are carriers of the E4 allele um, are more susceptible to anticholinergics, and there's, um, it also supports greater inflammation, both of which have been implicated in delirium severity. And what we found was that the presence of an APOE4 allele was associated with greater delirium severity that was averaged across their stay. It was also, it was in a, a dose-like effect. So you can see here, um, having one allele, this is severity, this is the number of allele, zero, one, two. Um, you can see that severity went up as the number of alleles did. And um, my postdoc student, she took the lead on that, Lauren Massimo. So, and that's, that's been published too, in case you're interested. So overall, given that multi-component interventions are recommended for delirium, it's important, I think, to find out which components really confer which benefits and the degree to which these benefits um, are sustained longitudinal. And we also need to find out who are the best responders to these. I think that's important because all interventions require staff time 
and um, using only those known uh, those interventions with known benefits is going to improve quality and cost of care. And then I think adequate pain control and appropriate pain medication management is really needed for optimal delirium treatment as well as for rehabilitation. So um, if you want to know more about delirium, I'm going to advertise this. Uh, uh, they have a yearly uh, conference. This year it's in San Francisco in June. And uh, you can go to their website and learn more about delirium as well as this conference. So I will end there. Thank you. To learn more about our scientists and the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.